Welcome to the Western Health Podcast, If Only Someone Had Asked, Family Violence, a Health Service Response. I'm Lucy Vandenberg, a Western Health staff member and presenter of this podcast. This series comes with a content warning. We'll be covering topics that may be distressing for people with first-hand experience of family violence or who have seen a loved one live through it. Help is available. Contact Respect on 1800 737 732 or you can see the supports listed in the show notes. We'd like to acknowledge that we have recorded this podcast on what is and always has been Aboriginal land. For many people, finding out that they are pregnant or welcoming a new baby into the world marks an exciting new phase of their lives. However, for some people, it can be an incredibly dangerous time. Unfortunately, we know that it's not uncommon for women to experience family violence during pregnancy or soon after a baby is born. In previous episodes, we've heard from victim survivors about how they feared for the safety of their newborn babies. Beth spoke of her husband getting angry with her, snatching their week-old baby and walking outside their house and her dreaded realisation that she could not leave her children alone with him. And Yee Man told us about how her husband threw a chair at her while she was breastfeeding. It struck their three-week-old baby in the skull, resulting in a desperate dash to hospital. In fact, data from the Australian Bureau of Statistics indicates that up to one-half of women who were in a violent relationship and who were pregnant at some time during this relationship experienced violence at the hands of their partner. Almost a quarter of these women reported that the violence occurred for the first time during pregnancy. Abusive and controlling behaviour can turn violent during pregnancy or existing violence in a relationship can escalate, particularly if the pregnancy is unplanned or unwanted. In this context, family violence has been linked to the perpetrator feeling that his primacy in the relationship is being undermined. An Australian Institute of Family Studies paper states that pregnancy has been identified as a time of greater autonomy for women. They're thinking about the baby and perhaps becoming less physically and emotionally available to their partners. With control being a significant aspect of family violence, violent or abusive men may find pregnancy threatening and seek to re-exert control over their partners. Asunta Moroni, Project Lead for Western Health Strengthening Hospital Responses to Family Violence, expands on this. When a woman is pregnant, what happens is, of course, her attention is moved away from him, the perpetrator, the person using violence, and her attention now is focused on another person, which is the baby. This can cause the perpetrator to feel jealous. It can cause him to feel like he's losing control of her. And so what happens is then the violence starts to escalate. So the other thing is that women who are pregnant are often going to medical appointments, talking to nurses, midwives, doctors, obstetricians, all these people who are asking all these questions about their relationships and their life. And so the perpetrator then feels like she might disclose something. What happens in pregnancy is that the violence tends to get worse. Often it doesn't always start in pregnancy. Most of the time there's been some controlling behaviour before the pregnancy. So there could be verbal abuse, there could be emotional abuse, there could be financial abuse. But as the perpetrator feels like they're losing control, then they start to escalate it and often we see physical violence occur during pregnancy. 
The Australian Institute of Family Studies paper, which I mentioned earlier, also discusses the strong correlation in research between unintended pregnancy and family violence. One study details women's descriptions of the various ways in which abusive partners had controlled their reproductive and sexual choices. This included sabotaging their contraception, refusing to use contraception, rape, and attempting to influence the outcome of pregnancies. It's thought that reproductive coercion is another mechanism through which perpetrators control and abuse women. Beth, who we heard from in our first episode, had five children with her abusive partner. Looking back, she suspects he sabotaged her contraception. I absolutely believe that he, um, I think he, not ambushed the contraception, but there's a different word for it, but I'm pretty sure he tampered with the contraception, which is why why that I had another one so quickly and then I had had two I had twins quickly after that and then when the fifth baby came along yeah I just just absolutely couldn't have any more children after that I just wouldn't you know but up until then I don't think I was really in control of falling pregnant if you know what I mean. Research tells us that family violence during pregnancy is associated with negative health outcomes for the fetus, mother and child. And this can include complications in pregnancy and birth, such as premature labour and miscarriage, fetal stress and or trauma, and low birth weight. It's also been associated with maternal depression and anxiety and substance abuse. What we know is that children are impacted by family violence even in utero. So we know that if a woman is pregnant and she's in crisis experiencing violence, that that can have an impact on the baby and it can impact in lower birth weight. It can impact on her health and well-being, therefore translating to the baby. So, And then when the baby's born, we can see babies who are unsettled, may have some cognitive issues. If she's assaulted during pregnancy, that can affect the fetus as well. So it has really wide-reaching impacts even in utero and so that's why it's so important to intervene at this time and intervene early. Sometimes children are catastrophically impacted by family violence, resulting in their death. We know that children can directly experience family violence when they're targeted by the perpetrator, but they can also indirectly experience family violence by witnessing violence being inflicted upon someone else. Victim survivor Beth shared that there were a couple of times when her partner behaved violently towards their children and she would intervene. Probably the times where I really felt fear for my own life was when I stepped in in those instances. And, of course, I would always step in in those instances, whether it be him building up and standing over a child and screaming at that child and me not knowing what was going to happen next or, or a pet or one of our animals. So those were the times where I knew. I mean, I didn't think about it, to be honest. I just stepped in. But, yeah, once or twice he was with the children. Beth also described using tactics that would limit the exposure her children had to violence. You know, just making sure that when an argument started, if he was going to get physical, I'd try and sort of draw him away down the hallway, you know, away from the children or into the shed or somewhere where they weren't there. Yes, they understood that he was building up, but I didn't want them to have that vision, I suppose, in their in their minds. I didn't want them to remember that when they closed their eyes at night. 
Research has found that exposure to family violence is associated with a range of outcomes for children, including diminished educational attainment, reduced social participation in early childhood, physical and psychological disorders, behavioural difficulties, and future victimisation and or violent offending. What we know now is that children are affected by family violence, whether they are the direct target of the violence or not. And in fact, the Family Violence Protection Act says that if you expose children to any of the acts that are family violence, so physical, sexual, financial, control, coercive control, then you are also perpetrating family violence against the child. So the child doesn't have to be the direct target of the violence. If they hear or see the violence, even if they're in the same household, then they are still victims of family violence. So Children can also be used as weapons in family violence. The perpetrating parent can use the child to spy on the other parent. They can undermine the parent-child, protective parent-child relationship. In most cases, the mother, you know, they can say that the mother is silly, stupid, not protecting them, so they can damage that relationship between the protective parent. Children can intervene in the violence, so physically intervene and get hurt. So they can be affected in all sorts of ways. And the younger the child is, then, you know, it's really important that we intervene early because if we wait till it's too late, then children grow up with trauma and that can affect their developmental, can affect them developmentally at school, in social relationships, in all sorts of ways, really. Again, disclaimer, I'm not a clinician, but when you grow up in stress, and your hippocampus is active all the time, you know, that stress hormone is active all the time, we know that that causes physical and biological changes in your body. You know, we could have adults with, you know, heart disease, diabetes, all those sorts of comorbidities. And there is a study in the US called the ACE study, so Adverse Childhood Experience Study, and it followed adults, children, sorry, through to adulthood, and looked at the impacts of trauma on the brain and on physical health. And what it found was that if you're growing up in trauma, then you have likelihood of uh, comorbidities and early death. So it has really long-reaching impacts. Asunta says that with the introduction of routine screening at all Victorian public antenatal settings, the opportunity to intervene early is now in place. Midwives and doctors at Joan Kerner Women's and Children's at Sunshine Hospital ask all pregnant women attending antenatal appointments a series of screening questions in an attempt to identify whether they are experiencing family violence. They're asked whether there is someone in the family that has made the woman feel unsafe or afraid for themselves or their children, whether someone has controlled their day-to-day activities or put them down, or whether someone has threatened to or actually physically hurt them. Depending on a woman's response, midwives and doctors will ask further safety planning questions to establish immediate risk. Senior midwife Emma Grealish at Joan Kerner Women's and Children's explains that midwives and doctors will only ask the questions if the woman is alone, whether it's a telehealth or face-to-face appointment. First booking appointments are either telehealth or face-to-face appointments depending on the woman's gestation. So if it's telehealth, then the midwives will try and work out who else is in the room with the woman? Is she home alone or does she have a partner there? Does she have kids of speaking age there or does she have a little toddler that, you know, is okay to ask the questions with? And then face-to-face 
if there's the partner there, then they'll kind of work out, do these questions need to be asked right now? Should I go take her into another room, do a pretend way and ask her the questions there? Or can I wait till the next appointment and we'll see if she's alone and we'll document that to hopefully prompt the other clinicians to ask that question. Emma also describes some tactics that midwives use to get one-on-one time with women, especially when they identify red flags in how male partners are behaving during the antenatal appointments. Sometimes we do get these partners that come to every appointment, they answer the questions for the woman. She becomes really quite withdrawn and soft-spoken and he's speaking on her behalf and that's where it becomes even more important to be able to screen her. So generally what we'll do is we'll take her saying we need to do her weight and this is just for the girls to see and we'll take her to the scales and do her weight and ask her those family violence questions in that section of the hospital away for him and just make sure, you know, we shut the door so he's not listening. If women do disclose family violence, midwives will get in touch with a social work team who can help with safety planning and referrals to family violence services. They'll make referral to social work services who are really fast acting. They're generally always there during the day for us to give a quick phone call if we need to and they're really good at triaging all the referrals that are urgent to be able to support those women. And then the midwives do have resources to help them, like, you know, the 1800 respect phone number and safe steps that they can refer women to and even give that as a backup to the women that may have declined social work services. Emma believes that midwives are well-placed to establish trust and rapport with pregnant patients. I do think there can be a lot of trust built between the midwife and the patients and there's certainly a lot of compassion and the midwives can give so much empathy for women in these situations. And I think another thing that we can do, which is really awesome, is the midwives who do find patients in these situations will try and get them back to see them again so they see a familiar face and they, you know, build that relationship even further throughout their pregnancy care. In earlier episodes of the podcast, If Only Someone Had Asked, the victim survivors we spoke to told us about how important it is for health professionals to show compassion towards women experiencing family violence – Emma is a strong proponent of providing compassionate, non-judgmental and consistent care. Give time to listen to her and show that, you know, you have that empathy and compassion for her situation, but not being judgmental to her because you never know how she's ended up in this situation and it's a really hard place to be in. I think showing her that there's support available and what we'll do to accommodate that for her, but not being frustrated if she doesn't take it right now but just saying it's always there and then for us in our setting is making sure she's coming back to her next appointment and facilitating that in any way you can ideally with you so she can see the friendly face again. We know that antenatal screening provides an opportunity for intervention for the pregnant woman and her unborn child but Asunta says clinicians should also be aware of children experiencing family violence who may either seek care at our health service or may attend with another family member seeking assistance. The child might present to our emergency department and they may present for a physical injury. And if a clinician believes that it's a non-accidental injury, so sort of an injury that doesn't make sense or that looks like it's done purposely, then they can present that way. They may present with the mother. So say, for instance, in antenatal clinic, if the woman comes in and she's pregnant but she's got other children, then what we know, if there's family violence in the home, then those children are at risk. So when we have a mother experiencing family violence, we have automatically we have children at risk because they're in the home with her. So the child who's presenting with her may be at risk and also an unborn child is at risk. They may present on the wards 
with other family members so we could notice some interactions with the children and the parents. They could present in outpatient clinics. So really anywhere that we see children, we've got to be aware that there may be some indicators that they may be experiencing trauma or family violence. For those of you who may be wondering what to do if you suspect that a child is experiencing family violence, Asunta has some advice about what to do and what the next steps may look like. So with adults, there's no mandatory reporting of family violence, of course, but with children, because they don't have a voice and it's our responsibility to protect them, then we are mandated to report any risk that we see. So Unless you are trained in working directly with children, we don't suggest that you approach the child, but we suggest that you have a conversation with social work or a line manager and make a child protection report. When a child protection report is made, it's done in partnership with the protective parent. But we would do that in partnership with the woman and let her know. And that's really important because often the woman that we're working with or the protective parent, in most cases the mother, is behaving protectively. So we don't want her to be punished and um, feel like, you know, child protection is going to come in and remove the children. So we're really clear with her that, you know, we have a responsibility to keep children safe and therefore we have a responsibility to make a notification to child protection that this is a good thing because that enables services to come into contact with the family and support So we'll do that with her knowledge and with her support. If a clinician raises their concern about suspected family violence, their identity is protected under the law and any report they make will be investigated by experts. You're disclosing what you believe, what you've seen or what you've heard or what you think. It's not our job to prove whether a child is in need of protection or not. That's not our job. All we need to have is a reasonable belief or a suspicion. Now, child protection will investigate and they'll make a decision whether to act or not. And if you're wrong and there's no suspicion or there's no abuse happening, then that's great. But my question is, what if you're right? And that's really important because children don't have a voice. They don't have anyone to speak up for them. So it's really important that we are that voice for children. Now, it doesn't always happen that child protection go in and remove children that's not always the case. Sometimes they will investigate, sometimes they will remove, sometimes they won't. Sometimes all they need is one more piece of the puzzle. And so by us ringing up and adding to that story, that might prompt them to act. Health services like ours care for patients with complex health needs, some of whom have experienced family violence as children. The impact on their mental and physical health can be profound. Asunta says that we should be asking ourselves, did it have to be like this? What could have been done to intervene earlier? She says healthcare workers are in a unique position to save and change lives. They can play a key role in breaking the cycle of abuse and violence, giving people a chance to start their journey towards accessing the safety and support that they need to recover and rebuild their lives. One person can't fix everything, but a whole lot of people can contribute. These are really complex issues and it can be sometimes daunting to think, how can I make a difference? But every single interaction where somebody gets a positive response or a positive interaction or a positive intervention can change that person's life. So it's really important to remember that you don't have to have all the solutions. You just have to be part of the pathway. 
Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, If Only Someone Had Asked. We hope that you have learnt more about the impact of family violence on women and children. Please consider sharing this podcast with your family, friends and colleagues so that they can increase their knowledge of this important issue. Thank you also to our producer, Susanna Cornelius. For more information, please see the show notes or visit our website, www.familyviolence.wh.org.au. I'm Lucy Vandenberg. See you next time.